0: Is this thing still on?
1: I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking?
0: Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Nurse podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald-Burley.
1: And my name is Sarah Fung.
0: And we are your podcast hosts.
1: If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes.
0: If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the support us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis.
1: This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you.
0: Hi and welcome everyone this week. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm just still laughing about the fact that my mouth is burning from some Thai food that I just ate, but uh, we're probably not going to get too much into that anyways.
1: But you know what? That's kind of fitting because this is a hot, spicy topic that we're going to talk about today.
0: Oh, snap, Sarah. (laughs) I try. I try. (laughs) No, that was a good one. But yeah, so today we're actually going to talk a little bit about the formula shortage. Um, various different feeding methods, so breast versus bottle or, you know, fed is best, whatever the case may be. But we thought that we would, you know, we're going to put our little whole our gritty spin on it. Um, and I think this has actually been a long time coming. Sarah's been evading me every time I've been asking her to have this this topic. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's actually a really challenging conversation for us to have because I think, you know, as maternal child nurses previously, we had been taught a lot about, you know, um, baby friendly initiative. And, you know, these various different things. and I think it's only as myself becoming a parent, and really hearing kind of some other people's stories that, you know, my mindset has changed in terms of, you know, how, how we should really go about these conversations, how we should talk to women. And just, yeah, you know, with Roe v. Wade, talking about abortion rights, talking about women's rights in general, I think it's just a conversation that we should have.
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you why I feel like this is a hot topic and why I've been evading you. I think that, I mean, I think infant feeding and breastfeeding is a very hot topic. I think it brings out a lot of strong emotions in people. And I think just historically, like if you think back to, you know, a hundred years ago, right, there weren't really any options. If a woman couldn't breastfeed, then the only other option would be a wet nurse. So having another woman breastfeed your baby. And if you couldn't do that, then you just, didn't make it you know obviously there are so many different other options now but there has also been this huge movement of really encouraging women to breastfeed to the point where they feel guilty. They feel a lot of mental distress if they can't achieve this goal. And that has never been the goal, right? It's always been, you know, do what's best for your baby and yourself. And somewhere along the way, I think the message kind of got lost to, you know, you have to breastfeed or else, right, at all costs. And it shouldn't be that way. It should always be a woman's choice. And it should always be us empowering women to make the best choice for them. And it's not up to us as healthcare professionals to, past judgment on what that might be.
0: Yeah, no, I I wholeheartedly agree with you, Sarah. I couldn't have said that any better than than how you've kind of laid it out. I think the, the biggest part, and I think it was even with myself becoming a mother, because, you know, I remember, and oh God, I feel so fucking guilty thinking about, you know, when I would go into that patient's room and you know they just delivered right like our goal it was like our goal was like get that baby on the breast in like five minutes or less right like essentially when we went in for our fourth check our fourth postpartum check we did the fundus so that is the you know the top of the uterus we're really massaging that to you know expel clots and make sure it's nice and hard i, I know way too much information oh. <laughs> but essentially another part of that check is your your baby check so you've you're going to do your your set of vitals. You're going to see how the latches. You're going to see how, you know, what like you've you've probably already spoken to um the individual the woman about their choices on feeding. But again, you you do that attempt, you do that that first try. And I just remember being like going in there and like you're like wrestling around their breasts. They're sweaty. They just had a baby and you're like trying to get this baby on. And I'd say, "Let, like, you know, there's times that we were successful and there's times that you weren't." And I could just feel the Tension. That that tension, right? That tension of that patient being like, you know, how stressed and how tired they were. But it was like, it was literally a part of our documentation. Did the baby latch within the first hour? And that's a part of the work that we were supposed to do as nurses. But I, it was only until I had my own children, how it dawned on me that, you know, may, am I doing the right thing here in terms of what I was doing or even how I approached it, the language that was used. And I I have to be honest, there's a little bit of guilt there on my part before I had kids in terms of how I handled those situations.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I feel the same way because I spent many years as a postpartum nurse, hours upon hours, helping women breastfeed through every possible imaginable apparatus. So (laughs) for those of you who don't know, there isn't just breast and bottle, right? So you could feed the infant with a cup. You could use a spoon. You could use something called a lactation aid device, which is a tube that's, you know, taped to the woman's breast. There's all kinds of contraptions when breastfeeding doesn't go exactly according to plan. And I felt a lot of pressure to be able to breastfeed and breastfeed properly because it was literally my job. I'm like, if I can't do this, it's the same as saying that I'm a fitness instructor and I can't work out. Like I just right. I felt like this was my existence and I'm like if I can't do this, then it will be hugely embarrassing. I would feel like a failure. And my son did get readmitted for jaundice and as soon as someone gets admitted for jaundice, it's like, okay, we got to push the feeding. We got to make sure they're feeding, right? And so I did have help from a lactation consultant, but we don't have role models, right, for breastfeeding. I mean, Do you recall in your childhood watching somebody breastfeed their child? Because I don't recall ever seeing that. We have lost a lot of that. So we just, you know, we think the baby's going to go on. Everything's going to go perfectly. And if it doesn't, then we start to panic and we start to go down this Google, YouTube spiral. And, you know, like, as you said, Amy, you're already spinning out of control after you have a baby, especially your first baby. It's very difficult to try and figure out what you need to do at the right time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, thinking about my experiences, like you, like just answering your question, um, I actually don't remember really seeing other women breastfeed, and I think this is actually a cultural thing, a Western society thing, where women tended to actually hide breastfeeding. I don't, and and the thing is, it still happens to this day where there's that shame, where you know we're taking out our breasts to feed our child. And we're shamed for it when essentially that's the, that's the reason, the intention behind us breastfeeding. It's actually for to give our children, our babies, nutrients. And I remember going to a bathroom hiding in a bathroom stall breastfeeding or you know you have that stupid fucking drape that's like (laughs) blowing in the wind and you're trying to like put your baby under it and they're pulling it off of their faces because they don't want it there and you're trying to be modest and cover up and i think i think all of that kind of leads into some of the the issues we have with talking about breastfeeding feeding in, in general because you know as a society as a whole we're still struggling with the fact that you know Men have hypersexualized breasts. Breasts have a function, they have a form. In that sense, where we're feeding our child, that is the function, that is the form, that is what's supposed to be happening. But I remember get, getting a lot of side eye, or I remember being in a restaurant actually when they used to have spring rolls downtown, and I had my twin boys, and you know. There was that rare moment where Jordan and I actually were able to get out. And I remember one of them started going and, you know, one starts going, the other one starts going. And I'm like, Oh crap. I gotta, I gotta do this. And I remember like we were in a pretty private booth area. And um, I remember like pulling out my breasts to breastfeed and seeing people looking at me like disgust, like how dare she pull her breasts out while we're eating our food. And it's just like, Oh my God. And then having that moment where, you know, you go, to a bathroom and you breastfeed your child, like why? Why? It's crazy.
1: You brought back so many memories of all the hours I spent breastfeeding. I used to plan out ahead of time when I would go out. I'm like, where can I go feed my baby if and when I need to? I would literally plan out where I would go based based on where I could feed. And it took me a while to get comfortable feeding in public, but eventually, I was like, I can't just keep sitting in bathrooms anymore. Because this is ridiculous, you know, like unhygienic (laughs) too, right? (laughs) It stinks in there. People are doing all kinds of things that I don't really care to know about, and um, it's it's very cultural. Like the other thing is, I went to Hong Kong shortly after my first child was born, and there are so many options in Hong Kong for breastfeeding mothers. There just aren't a lot of breastfeeding mothers. So everywhere I went, I was escorted to this really pristine, huge infant feeding room, you know, with a TV and a microwave and everything, because I think they were so excited that someone was actually going to use it, that they really wanted to make sure I knew where it was. And everywhere I went, there was like 20 different kinds of formula in every drugstore. It's just very culturally acceptable to formula feed, which I guess kind of dovetails into our topic about, you know, uh, formula shortage and the use of formula in general and, and what we think about that as a society.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about this whole formula shortage. I mean, I think this is something that I don't think anybody anticipated seeing or or thought was going to happen. And I think let's just kind of talk about like where did this all kind of come from? So, Abbott is actually like one of the largest distributors of um formula products. I think they're outside they're in Michigan. They're a huge U.S. supplier of powder infant formula, and they actually had to close their plant. So they closed their plant because this was actually back in February. They closed their plant due to reports of bacterial infections in four infants. And um, I believe you said, I think two actually had died um, and others were in, were hospitalized. And I'm going to probably say this bacteria wrong. It's the Cronobacter sak to Zaki and the two babies they actually died after consuming the baby formula that was man- manufactured by this plant so the plant essentially was shut down um again this is what happens when we have these government created monopolies right so this one large um facilities creating the most amount of formula products in the United States distributing all over the world and now they're shut down again this is why we have problems with capitalism and, and these monopolies. Like, again, this is why we need to do things differently.
1: Yeah, and I think this whole pandemic has really illustrated how delicate the whole global su- supply chain is for a number of different things, formula just being one of them. And I'm actually surprised that this hasn't gotten more media attention because there is a shortage in Canada as well. It's not as severe. As in the states, but you know, again, it's a woman's issue, and I feel like because it's a woman's issue, it's not getting the attention it deserves.
0: A hundred percent. And again, you know, I think the other p- the other piece that was described about you know the shortage and kind of what what's different here between us and the states is there were import restrictions. So another reason for the intense uh, concentration was their import controls. And it said about ninety eight percent of the former consumed in the U.S. Was pr- produced domestically, so again, that like that's kind of a part of some of the issues. But you know, Canadian producers, we actually sub their like milk and formula here is subsidized by our government, so that's why we have pretty much steered clear of the U.S. market. But again, we're still feeling the ramifications and impact from the U.S. because of the supply chain issues, because of import restrictions and various different things, and. One of the things that we all have to recognize is the shortage is far from over <laughs> and i think we're going to see the the impact to the formula shortage here as well and again this is where we have to talk about what we've seen, seen in our organizations when it comes to formula because i think this is where other women can really connect with our stories and understand how difficult it was for us to be in those places because i remember what it was like when we were trying to get the status of baby friend friendly or baby the baby friendly initiative. And this isn't to knock the BFI initiative. It has its merits. I believe it has its place. I believe it's important. I believe that breastfeeding is important. I there's the 10 steps. I'm not going to go through them cuz honest to God, I can't remember them. But again, I think that some of the the practices that we put in place were not supportive of women.
1: It's it's a great Achievement to have. It's a great thing to encourage women to breastfeed. I will say, though, I don't think that women are set up for success. So, in terms of hospital stays, right, they can be as short as 24 hours. What can you really do in 24 hours besides make sure the baby's latched and that the baby hasn't lost too much weight? So, I think the hospital stays are too quick. Um, Staff are under too much pressure to do too much. So, breastfeeding is something that takes time. You can't rush it. So, if a nurse has, you know, so many patients, she can only spend so much time, she or he can only spend so much time with each patient. And this is something that takes time, especially if you didn't grow up with it, especially if it was your first baby, if you had any medical interventions at all that might make it more difficult. I think more training for staff too, because, you know, as a postpartum nurse, I felt I was lucky to get some training, but there are a lot of staff out there, especially right now that don't receive any training, especially with the shortages and, you know, everything happening the way it is. And, you know, just better supports at work for pumping, for having more time off work. I know that's a whole other issue in itself, but If you have to go back after several weeks, how can you really even make sure your milk supply is established? How can you even find time or a place to pump? These are all things that affect breastfeeding. And if I was in this situation right now, I would feel even more guilty that I wasn't able to breastfeed. So not only did I maybe not meet my goals in terms of infant feeding, but now I'm struggling to find formula. And this really just compounds the issue.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely agree, and I I think one one story really sticks with me, and I'll I kind of never forget this. I remember being like a labor and delivery nurse, and I think we were we were at a point where I think we just had no beds in postpartum. So. The patients were delivering and they were staying with us. And again, I wouldn't say that labor and delivery nurses have minimal training in breastfeeding. Like I think um, the training that I received was adequate to help support. But I remember, um, I remember this one patient and it was, it was, um, so this patient was South Asian. And I remember that, uh, you know, she came in, she came in with uh, her family. And again, within that culture, family is hugely important during the birth, birthing cycle and whatnot. I believe her mother-in-law was there. And I remember a nurse saying to me, oh, my God, you have a South Asian patient. You know how hard it's going to be to get them to breastfeed. The mother-in-law is just going to give them the bottle and you're going to have to sit there arguing with them about why we should breastfeed. Oh, how 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 are you gonna have to deal with this? It's gonna be so annoying. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, when did we get there? Right? Because one, that's that's racist.
1: <laughs> and right. two,
0: if that's a part of their cultural preference, why don't we have conversations? And then again, at the end of the, the day, the conversation, if we have it and the choice is still that they want to provide a formula then we provide them formula. And I actually remember speaking to that family. And I remember the mom just saying, you know, in our culture, this is what we, we were afraid that the baby's going to be hunger, hungry. And I said, okay, that's fine. And she's like, you know, we'll continue to express colostrum and breast milk until the mother's milk comes in. So it wasn't even like a no that they don't intend to breastfeed or exclusively breastfeed. It was just a this is our cultural preference in terms of how we do things. But in terms of how the organization talked about it, in terms of how even that nurse's perspective of what it was, it I found it very, very disturbing. And I remember feeling very guilty because I remember hearing, I remember sitting on some of these committees, Sarah,
1: mm-hmm. and they would
0: talk about, you know, we need to put bottle milk on... Um, we need lock- to put it on our order cookie. sets. We need to we need to lock them up. We need to, you know, if a if a family member wants formula, where they, they need to have a, a doctor's order. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, what are we doing? What if this was something else? Like we, we just talked about Roe v. Wade and talked about, you know, um the slow peelback of women's rights to choose. What are what were we thinking when those types of conversations were going on? When we were like, oh, you know. We're going to stop having sponsors of Johnson Johnson when they were helping with educational resources and other things that help support nurses because we solely didn't want to have formula or it was a part of this specific step. It just really – I had a lot of conflict within me. And I think at the end of the day, after I had my own kids and saw how difficult it was and just being and being that person in the hot seat, I was just like, if my child has something rather than nothing – i'm happy and i think everybody everybody's situation is so unique it's so different and we have to respect that we have to respect that in, as individuals and and again this whole women doing this to women it just it just rubbed me the wrong way. Like if anybody should be supportive of women, it should be other women. I just want to peel that back a little bit about even talking about, you know, the the various different feeding modalities that we had, because we talk about women as a very gendered in a very gendered way, because there are patients that come into labor and delivery that have infants that are not women that may be trans that may be that may be gay males and we have to con- we have to have those considerations too and i just think that we we had a very narrow focus in terms of what our outcomes or what our outcome measures wanted to be
1: yeah and i actually remember getting some really good advice from a colleague of mine And, you know, she said, you should never want to breastfeed more than your patient does. You should meet them halfway. So you know what I mean, right? Like, I would always ask the open question. I'm like, what are your plans for feeding? You know, you tell me, right? And if they say to me, I want to breastfeed, but every time I walk in, they've just given the baby a bottle, that's telling me that they've maybe said what they think I want to hear, but really they want to bottle feed. So if you want to bottle feed, that's fine. I'm here to support your choice. I'm also here to tell you if you want to know what the benefits are of breastfeeding, right? So if, um, If the plan is I'm going to breastfeed or I'm going to bottle feed for the first week and then I'm going to breastfeed, then I would feel an obligation to say, you know, that might be a little bit more difficult because this is where you need to establish your milk supply, blah, blah, blah. Just give them the information. But if you're finding that you're bending over backwards and your patient's actions are not demonstrating to you that they want to breastfeed when they go home, I think that's something to keep in mind as well or vice versa like if a patient says yeah I'll bottle feed but then you see them they keep trying to you know breastfeed the baby maybe just ask them like you know whatever you want to do is okay just let me know so I can support you properly
0: yeah i mean i think we the the main message really is we should be taking our cues from the patients right like i think i i again i i think breastfeeding is a great thing to do but at the end of the day if the patient does not want to then that is their choice and we should respect that and then what we should be doing is you know providing the most amount of education or resources that we have in terms of bottle bottle feeding because there was a lot of things I learned well after about bottle feeding that I didn't know about and I remember making my kids their bottles and like reading the package afterward being like oh my god i was supposed to do x y and z or i was supposed to use like i was supposed to use this type of water or whatever the case may be and <laughs> i was kind of astounded but i think at the end of the day whatever the woman decides to do that works best for her family that works best for her it should be their choice. But I, I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about assistive devices and assistive services. So let's talk a little bit about lactation consultants. And I'm going to pass it to you, Sarah, to maybe mm-hmm. explain what exactly does a lactation consultant do?
1: Well, I was formerly a lactation consultant, so it's a designation that you have to have and you have to have so many years of hands-on experience helping mothers with breastfeeding. You have to do a certain number of hours of coursework, and then, of course, there's an exam that you have to take. So it's specialized training to um, assist in all different types of infant feeding situations, all different types of uh, medical complications, either in the mother or the infant and be able to recognize and support the mother or parent through it. So it's something that um, there are lactation consultants that work in hospitals. There are lactation consultants that work privately. So they, um, you know, they operate in the community. Uh, They work independently. It's their own business. And there are lots of different other breastfeeding supports out there that may not be run by lactation consultants. They'd be be healthcare professionals that have experience in breastfeeding. So it could be public health nursing. It could be a community health center. There's lots of different ways you can get support. But I would say the main thing is to make sure that you're working with someone that is a healthcare professional and has the right background and knowledge to be able to support you. Um, Yeah, so lactation consultants, they do have extra knowledge and expertise. And I think it's um, it's a very important thing that if you do get help that you find someone that's non-judgmental and someone that understands and will support your goals for feeding, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And the other piece is like, you know, what, what would you say their main role is? Like, I think that, so I remember seeking out a lactation consultant and actually this was with my twin, with my twins. So Tristan, when I would try to feed him, he would like drink, he would start drinking. And I think my, my like letdown response was too much. And he'd like gurgle and like, and he'd like hit my boob away. And so I went and saw a lactation consultant for that. And we tried all sorts of things. We tried slowing. um, We used a nipple shield to slow down the amount of milk. It never really happened, like worked out. So he kind of did six months and then I just, I bottle fed him breast milk. But I mean, I think there's a variety of different things that they do. So maybe you can kind of tell our listeners, what are some of the roles that um, lactation consultants have in terms of feeding?
1: Well, I think that the main thing is because they have that specialized training, they can help you develop um, an infant feeding plan. So whether that be um, an in-hospital feeding plan or in the community feeding plan, the main role is really to protect and support breastfeeding. And that still extends to whether you're completely breastfeeding, partially breastfeeding, you know, you're doing a combination of both, that's fine. It's really to support um, safe infant feeding. And if there are issues that they see, for example, if the infant has a tongue tie or maybe you have an issue with your breast, um, they will often do a health assessment, even if you've had breast surgery, if you've had um, implants of any kind, because that can affect feeding. They can give you advice on different things you can do to increase your milk supply as well. And the other thing that lactation consultants can do is make referrals. So if for some reason you need to be referred to a pediatrician, um, they can do that as well. So there's a, a defined scope of practice, and they have to operate within that scope of practice. Practice and uh, most lactation consultants are nurses. There are a few that aren't, but again, they have to meet all of the uh, experience and coursework and pass that exam.
0: Yeah, I mean, so so we've talked about kind of like the role, the good, the the like the good things that they do, but but let's talk about a little bit about the the ugly, the 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 stereotypes that we might have heard. And I don't know if you've seen this clip from a middle, a mill, sorry, the show is called a million little things where essentially a lactation consultant had kind of a negative interaction with the mother where she felt that she was being shamed by not calling her sooner. So she had come in to see this lactation consultant and she was like, I've been having this difficulty for like two weeks. And the lactation consultant was like, why, why did you wait so long to see me? And the mother was like, Oh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm a new mom. I'm just kind of trying to get my shit together. And I guess she was there with her friend. And in the clip, essentially, what ends up happening is her friend's like, shut up. And and the lactation comes to and was like, who are you talking to? And she's like, you, you're the only other person in the room other than my friend. Shut up. And then she kind of explains to her like how difficult motherhood is and the fact that she made this woman feel shame. So one of the things that I'd say, even, even when I was a labor and delivery nurse, it was kind of this running joke where we talked about, and it's, it's really a harsh term to be honest. We called them like lactation consultant Nazis, or we call there were all these various different names that we had. And I I remember meeting, come on, Sarah, we know we've met like one or two that were like, holy shit, this woman is hardcore, but of course they can have a very damaging And lasting effect on the people that they work with, with these types of, you know, this type of behavior. So again, like, there are stereotypes, it is a stereotype. But again, I would say that, you know, it's a stereotype that we should listen to. So if this is some of the feedback that, you know, LCs are getting then maybe it's feedback that they should take and actually listen to and do something about it. So again, here were some of the stereotypes I came across. So the one-size-fits-all lactation consultant, the pushy, aggressive lactation consultant, the rude the rude or mean lactation consultant, the annoying lactation consultant. I think we've met all of these ones. But if you're... Um, the you're not breastfeeding if you're pumping lactation consultant, the not very helpful lactation consultant, and you know, the the stuffed baby on the breast lactation consultant. But at, at the end of the day, I I believe that there's a lot of great that they do, honestly. Mm-hmm. But again, with the good comes the bad, right?
1: Yeah, and I think you could extend this to nurses as well. All these stereotypes could extend to nurses. But but I will say I will say lactation consultants having access to one is a very privileged thing to have. First of all, not all hospitals can afford them. So usually if there's a budgetary issue, the first thing that goes are these lactation consultant breastfeeding services, right? So only probably the hospitals that have the funding can afford them. Also, um, Lactation consultants aren't covered to make home visits. So usually the type of people that can afford them are the ones that have the extra money. And let's face it, it's several hundred dollars to get someone to yes. come to your home. Maybe now with a pandemic, it's cheaper if you do the virtual option, but it's still going to cost you, right? And another thing I want to point out about the whole world of lactation consulting is it's very non-diverse. I have not met too many lactation consultants who are uh, women or people of color. I think that's something that might help a little bit. If there were women that looked like um, the woman that they were helping, that would probably make a difference, to be honest. But it's a very non-diverse area to be in. So, yeah, you know, it's just it's just when you see someone like you you mentioned the woman who is South Asian. I wonder what difference it would have made if a lactation consultant walked in who was of the same ethnicity and maybe spoke the same language as a mother in law.
0: That might have made a big difference. There's an understanding there. That's that's the whole aspect of representation, right? I think it's just you, you can have shared experiences and shared understanding and shared knowledge with someone who might be from your cultural background. Not to say that someone from your that someone who's not from your cultural background shouldn't have that same type of training. But that representation is so hugely important. And I think that, you know, for all of the things that we've said about like lactation consultants and breastfeeding, I think obviously there are certain things that people should look for in terms of a good lactation consultant, or even someone or even, you know, if you're going about your journey, or you've just delivered your child, like, what is it that you kind of want at the end of the day? And I think any care provider who does more talking than listening is probably not the best person that will help support you. And again, it should be about what you want at the end of the day. Like, what are your goals? What are the things that you desire for your feeding choices for your, 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 your infant? Yeah, like I think it's also just important that the individual is prioritized. So again, you know, I, like I I had mentioned this cut, cookie-cutter approach, and we want to really move away from that and really design plans that work for individuals.
1: Yeah, and with selecting a lactation salt, if this is an option for you, I would go by recommendations, look up reviews online what are this person's principles that they operate by? Because it should always be someone who empowers you, right? Not someone that makes you feel guilty or shamed for things that you did or didn't do so far in your journey. It's it's really about someone that's going to make you feel good about your choices, help you with where you need help, uh, be there for, you know, if you've changed your mind, that's always okay too. And just support women and families.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think the other piece is just, you know, at the end of the day, it's your decision, right? I think you have to be, like you said, Sarah, you need to be more passionate than, than your lactation consultant. So if they're more passionate about what they're trying to do, then it's probably that that whole relationship's not clicking. And again, like you said, um, that uh, that aspect of affordability, right? So there's a really short turnaround time in hospitals here, particularly in Canada. It's 24 to 48 hours. And I think for some midwife births, it's it's even less. And again, if they're not in-house, you're looking at an additional cost and that representation may not be there in terms of, you know, cultural preferences and those types of choices. So again, I think just at the end of the day, when I when I think about these conversations and I've seen some of the experiences that women have discussed, I think at the end of the day, I know it's so cliche, but fed is best. If it works best for whatever modality works best for you, your family, your lifestyle, as long as the baby is fed and they're happy, then I'm not going to shit on whatever choice that you decide to make.
1: I know. And I feel like with this episode, no matter what we say, we're going to get some hate. But I will say that as someone who did breastfeed um, for a long time, it is a very big commitment. So it's important to know that too, right? Like I'm not here to tell you, you know, oh, I'm so much better than everyone because I was able to breastfeed. It's not that. I want people to know the reality of what it means to exclusively breastfeed. That means literally you cannot be away from your baby At all, until they finish breastfeeding. And while it is a wonderful journey, it can be very uh, draining, um, but also rewarding at the same time.
0: (laughs) What a pun, Sarah. It could be very Oh my gosh, I didn't even mean it as a pun, but yeah, you're right. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I think I I think I just think that the most important thing here, yes, there's the evidence. And again, the other piece that's really important is making sure that whatever evidence that you're being provided with, it's evidence based, whether it's coming from your lactation consultant, whether it's you perusing the Internet or, you know, doing Dr. Google, make sure the evidence and the information that you have is informed by, you know, research studies like clinical research trials and that whatever evidence information is being provided to you actually checks out at the end of the day but again it's your choice whatever you decide we should be able to be there as a nurse as a lactation consultant whomever caring for you taking care of you and making sure that your choice above all is selected and is respected
1: absolutely